Right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to have you here this morning. We, uh, as a church, are going through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, as we have already pointed out, John's Gospel is unique when compared with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospel. Synoptic means similar. They're similar uh, among themselves. John's gospel is unique in that almost one half of John's entire gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, chapters 12 through 19, and half of that focuses on the last 12 hours of his life before the cross. John gives us great detail that the other gospel writers don't give us, which we're looking forward to studying as we get to those chapters and, uh, closer to the crucifixion. But uh, once again, as we enter into chapter 12, we uh, find ourselves entering the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, an incredibly special week for us who are Christians in that we call it Passion Week. Now, Passion Week begins with his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and culminates with a week later on Resurrection Sunday when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. John 12 opens up, verse 1, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, just to review a little bit from last week, from the timeline of John's gospel, it seems that Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover, sometime Friday afternoon. Because the Jews are on a lunar calendar, their new day begins at sundown, so when the sun went down, it became their Saturday our Friday evening. It's a new day for them at sundown. John 12, verse 12 says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, let me stop you, this next day would have been Sunday, the 10th of Nizan. The 10th corresponds to our late March, early April. The 10th of Nizan, we happen to know that this particular date was April 632 A.D., we studied it last week, uh, the day that Jesus came to present himself to the nation as their Messiah and King, as prophesied by the prophet Daniel 600 years earlier, and uh, the very day, April 6, 32 AD, Palm Sunday. So this would have been for the Jewish, the Jews, the uh, uh, Sunday, the 10th of Nizan, and the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse 20 of chapter 12 takes place two, or, two to four days before that. Two to four days before that. Verse 20 says, And now, excuse me, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now, before we go any farther, let me remind you what we looked at last time. And that is that um, the events of chapter 11 really set in motion much of what goes on in chapter 12. Of course, chapter 11 deals with the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And it was really the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus that really began to heat things up in the Jewish, Jewish people's hearts about the kingdom. Uh, you have to understand, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the, the news quickly spread throughout all of Jerusalem and beyond that the prophet, they knew him as a prophet, the prophet Jesus of Nazareth, has just raised the man who was dead and in the tomb for four days. I mean, that news was explosive. And it really said, I mean, you had some Jews that were on Jesus' side, believed in him. You had a big chunk that didn't believe in him. And there were a, a good number that were on the fence. Well, I believe this pushed them over onto Jesus' side. How could they deny uh, the, the power of Jesus Christ? And now many begin to think, no, he's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. And the kingdom is here, because when Messiah comes, they all believed he would bring the kingdom. So things that were, were heating up now, they just explode. And so we um, see that in John chapter 12, verse 1, as things now begin to reach a fever pitch from what went on in chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Jump down to verse 17. Therefore, the people who were with him, 
when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Greek word is miracle. Uh, in other words, a lot of people came to the feast because they wanted to see Jesus. I mean, now he has been elevated to, you know, celebrity status, although I hate to use that about ministry. Uh, we're not celebrities. I don't care if you've got a church of 10,000, 20,000 people. We're servants. We're not celebrities. When pastors begin to think of themselves as celebrities and not servants, things get bad very quickly. So, but, but there's always going to be groupies. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. Jesus had his groupies. He shooed them away different times in his ministry. He didn't want groupies. He wanted true disciples. So often he'd turn to them, and he would lay something heavy on the line about what it meant to really follow him, and they would be turned off, and they would leave. And that would be, a be okay with him. He wasn't looking to build a big following. He was only wanting to build strong disciples, okay? And so you have a bunch of people that heard about the miracle uh, of Jesus raising Lazarus, and so they came to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, okay? I want to see this guy uh, who was dead for four days. What does that look like? Of course, it looks fine because Lazarus, no, no problem, right? Um, well, this made the Pharisees crazy. First, uh, first of all, the chief priests the earlier, uh, I think in chapter 11, they're, they're remedy for this whole deal because people were coming to Christ by, in droves because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. The chief priests, their response to this was, let's just kill them both, okay? And the Pharisees just freaked out, okay? The, verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, they're talking about the chief priests, okay? You see that you are accomplishing nothing by listening to these guys that want to now kill both of them. Yeah, give them an opportunity to raise two more from the dead, all right? That's all we need. Look, the whole world has gone after him, okay? You know, you've made things worse, you guys. The whole world has gone after him now. One author provides perspective. He said, and I quote, As the crowd grew in size and interest in the Savior mounted, the Pharisees were beside themselves. Nothing they could say or do had the slightest effect. With frenzied exaggeration, they cried out that the whole world had gone after Jesus. They did not realize that the interest of the crowd was but a fat passing thing, and that those who really were willing to worship Jesus as the Son of God were very few in numbers, end quote. I like what the author, commentator J. Vernon McGee, pastor at one time with the Lord now, great guy, great commentary series, if you're looking for a good commentary series. I like what J. Vernon McGee comments on this, on the fickle enthusiasm of the crowd. He said, and I quote, my favorite painting of the crucifixion shows three empty crosses. The bodies of the crucified have been taken down from the crosses and lay, uh, lie in the tombs. In the background is a little donkey eating on a palm frond. What a message. The discarded palm branch and the cross are the tokens of his so-called triumphal entry. Where is the crowd that cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord? They may be the same crowd that four days later shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Now they are gone, and he is in the tomb. You see, he offered himself to them publicly as their king, but he was rejected, end quote. Now that, folks, sets the stage for verse 20. That brings us to verse 20 and what happens next. And remember, nothing is in God's word by accident. God never places extraneous thoughts that just uh, have the purpose of filling up space. In his word, everything is there for a reason. We learn from Jesus' own mouth, every jot, every tittle, we would say every dot of the I and cross of the T is there by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Verse 20 is no exception. Now, now is an important word. Now, after Jesus was rejected on Palm Sunday, now there were certain Greeks, Gentiles, among those who came up to worship at the feast. <clears throat> You may not realize this, but verse 20 begins a very important transition in the ministry of Jesus. The transition from him offering salvation to the Jewish people, those he came primarily but not exclusively to save, but who had for the most part rejected him, 
to now turning to the Gentiles who came seeking him and those he would receive and allow to become part of his covenant people, his new covenant people. Up until this point in the ministry of Jesus, he concerned himself primarily with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, when he sent out the 12 apostles to evangelize the lost, he made sure they didn't go anywhere else. He said to them, do not go in the way of the, into the way of the Gentiles. Stay away from all Gentile areas, but rather go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet even though God had ordained that the children of Israel were to be the first to be offered citizenship in his coming kingdom by receiving Jesus as their king, they rejected him for the most part. Again, uh, there were disciples that had put their faith in him, but the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and so on, Sadducees, they had the religious leadership had all rejected him and a good number of other Jews as well. So they were to be first to receive since the kingdom was a promise that went all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. It was only fitting that when Messiah came, he went to the Jews first. They were the chosen people of God. They were the covenant people of God. They were the ones for many uh, centuries had uh, meticulously copied God's word and passed it from generation to generation. It was only fitting that they be the first uh, to have announced to them, the king is here, receive your king. The kingdom will be coming right after you receive him as a nation. But they, for the most part, rejected Jesus. And so now after having been offered the gospel of the kingdom first, but rejecting it, Jesus now turns to the Gentiles with the offer of salvation, as was illustrated in the parable of the wedding feast which Jesus gave in our Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. You can read that on your own. That wedding feast is exactly what we're talking, that parable is exactly what we're talking about. How Jesus invited the Jews first to come to the marriage feast, you know, and they rejected it, the, 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 the king. And, and so he had his servants go into the highways and byways and gather any Gentiles who would want to come. Read, read it on your own. You'll see very clearly what's in view there. You know, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that Israel's rejection of Messiah caused salvation to come to the Gentiles. Now, I don't have enough time to have you turn to these. You can write down the references. Let me read them to you. Because when I say Paul the Apostle in Romans 11 tells us that Israel's rejection of Messiah caused salvation to come to the Gentiles, you might be thinking, were the Gentiles an afterthought? No. Not, it's, it might seem that way, but not at all. We know that from these scriptures I'm about to read and many others in the Old Testament. It was God's plan from the beginning to save Gentiles. All the way back when God chose Abram, who later became Abraham, to be the father of a new nation. We know it as Israel, the Jewish people, right? At that time, he was called Abram, and in Genesis 12, verse 3, God said to him, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Listen, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abram, because from your loins will eventually come Messiah. And he will not but just be Messiah to the Jews. He's going to be Savior to the whole world. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, God said, I, the Lord, have called you, speaking of Messiah, talking to Jesus. I have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, listen, as a light to the Gentiles. It was always God's intention to send Messiah, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read, Indeed, he says, God is speaking, is it too small a thing that you, Messiah, should, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? That's, of course, true. Messiah was, a, was going to be a Jewish Messiah, but he wouldn't be limited to the Jews. God goes on to say, I will also give you, Jesus, as a light to the Gentiles. 
that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, that you should bring salvation to all the families of the earth. I'll give you one more, Romans 9, verses 24 to 26. Paul, the apostles in verse 24, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons, the daughters of the living God. He's talking about the Gentiles, who initially were not his people, but under the new covenant would become his people. You see, in John 10, Jesus had affirmed this very thing when he said in verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep mentioned in verse 16, which were not of this fold, not of this fold meaning the fold of Israel, the other sheep is a reference to Gentiles whom he would gather to himself and make one flock consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers. We call it the church, right? The church. And you can read about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, because Paul picks up on this, and he says that Jesus Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile and has made from the two one new man in Christ, the church, the body of Christ. So it was God's plan from the beginning that there would be one flock made up of Jews and Gentile believers uh, under the new covenant and be one shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who would be a shepherd to the whole flock, both Jew and Gentile. So guys, this was all part of God's plan of redemption for the world from the beginning. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, rejected by his people Israel, becomes the Savior of the whole world for any who would believe in him and receive him. Remember when we started John's Gospel, we said, as we came to, uh, to chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 12 and 13, or excuse me, 11 and 12. Listen to what John uh, said again. He, Jesus, came to his own, Israel, and his own, the Jewish people, did not receive him. But as many as received him, Gentiles, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. So this now becomes a very important section of Scripture. John 12, verse 20, and moving forward, in that it marks the beginning of a great transition from Israel being the light of God to this world. The light of God, remember when Jesus told his disciples who were Jewish, uh, you are now the light of the world, right? Right? Uh, you know, a, a city on a hill can't be hidden and so on and so forth. You don't light a lamp, put it under a, a bushel. You, you put it on uh, in a high place where it gives light to the whole, whole uh, house. You are, speaking of Jewish disciples, you are the light of the world. Well, those Jewish disciples went on to be the Christians of the early church too, all right? But initially, God had chosen Israel to be a light. He said that in the Old Testament, a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to show the Gentiles, uh, if uh, any people makes the God of, of Israel their God, he will bless them, he will take care of them. Of course, the Jewish people got to believe that God only chose them because they were better than the Gentiles. They wrote the Gentiles off. The rabbis thought the Gentiles were only created to fuel the fires of hell. I mean, you're not going to win too many people with that kind of an attitude. So they kind of blew it. And they fell into, into you know, exclusivism where, where it's like only us. Only God loves us. They, they actually taught that. God only loves the Jewish people. And so they weren't being a light. And, so we're, and now they reject their own Messiah, who was the light of the world himself. So now we're transitioning from Israel being the instrument, a light to the world, to now Gentiles who are going to become the new light to the, the new instrument of God to bring God's truth, God's light, the gospel, to the whole world. We know the church began tech, uh, technically, officially, uh, Acts chapter 2, on Pentecost. 
And that's when the church was born. And it picked up the um, command of, it, of our Lord and Savior when he said, go into all the world. You start with Jerusalem, then go to Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. The Gentiles, because initially the church was predominantly Jewish believers, but eventually became predominantly Gentile believers. And, um, but going into all the world, we know that Paul the Apostle, in talking to the Philippians, uh, and they were as a Gentile church at Philippi for, for the, excuse me, for the most part. And here's what he tells them, right along what we're talking about, in Philippians two verses fourteen to sixteen. He said, "Do all things without complaining, and disputing." People say, "Well, how, how is it exactly I'm a light?" Here it is. How how exactly can I be a light? Well, here Paul's telling you right here. Stop complaining. Stop fighting. Church, stop bickering, get coming against each other and all this nonsense. And let's start coming together in unity, filled with the love of God. Go out and reach the lost like we're supposed to do. He says, you know, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine forth as lights in the world. You know, there's a lot of people that, are, that come to church because God's tugging on their heart, and they come to a church like a lot of the Gentiles came to the temple in the Old Testament. You know, even in Jesus' day, we, we talked about this. Because God was tugging on their heart, and they wanted to check out the God of Israel. The Jews, God mandated that there was supposed to be a court, the outer court, where priests would stay and, and stand, and because this was a place where Gentile seekers could come and ask questions, and maybe proselytize to Judaism, right? Of course, the first thing they saw was the money changers and, and, and you know, the selling of animals at exorbitant prices there and, and, and changing money uh, from Roman currency in the temple shekels because you couldn't give to God in the temple anything but temple shekels. Fine, but they were charging an exorbitant exchange rate. So the first thing that people saw when they came to the temple area was all this corruption, all this greed, all, same thing a lot of people see when they first come to a, many churches. The pastor's incessantly is talking about money, 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 money. It's incredible. And, and all the other things that go along with it. The, I don't even want to. All right. Years ago, we had a young lady who was friends with somebody whose family went to another church. And, and she spent the night at their house, you know, sleepover. And so the next day, the idea was, the family was going to take this young lady to their church, you know, and, and you know, the family of the lady, that, the young lady slept over, came to our church. And that's how I found out about this story. They went to this church, and there had been something brewing, and it boiled over that Sunday. A big brouhaha among the leadership, until one of the elders actually had the pastor pinned up against the wall by his neck with his forearm. And I thought, oh, that's great. I wonder how many knew... Uh, how many seekers were there that Sunday? This is, this is wrong. And Paul said, if you want to be a light in the darkness, then first of all, get right with God. Secondly, get right with each other. And thirdly, start fulfilling the mission God has called you to, the Great Commission, right? But these other sheep, they're the Gentiles. And God wants us to go into all the world and reach the Gentiles. So here's the transition starting, all right? And um, the Gentiles becoming the light of God, bringing his truth to the world. Here in John 12, though, this group of Greeks, or Gentiles, who are seeking Jesus become a type of first fruits. Again, the Spirit of God is presenting something here beyond the literal, uh, you know, interpretation. I believe in John 12, these Greeks that came to Jesus, these Gentiles who were seeking him become a type of first fruits, a type of first fruits of a great Gentile harvest of souls, which would eventually be called the church. The church was commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and be a light, preaching the gospel and picking up where Jesus left off after he ascended back to his father, after he risen from the dead, of course. You remember that Jesus had 
was starting to prepare his disciples for this very thing um, a few weeks, if not a few months from the cross, where he's pulled away from public ministry to focus primarily on his disciples. He knew these guys weren't ready at that time to take over the work of the kingdom that he had started, so he needed to really build into them with some intense discipleship. That's what we see going on. John highlights it, right? But Jesus Christ, his ministry was never to be, uh, when he died and rose again and went back to the Father, it was never to end there. That was only the beginning. You remember Luke, of course, wrote a two-volume commentary on Jesus' life and ministry. The first one is the gospel according to Luke, and he follows that up with a, a second uh, uh, volume, the book of Acts. At the end of the book of, of Gospel of Luke, Jesus rose from the dead and uh, is going to be ascending back. I don't think he's going to be ascending back to the Father. But the book of uh, Acts opens up with these words, The former account I made, O Theophilus. Theophilus seems to have been Luke's master. Uh, Luke was a slave, but he was a physician. That's how it was back then. Uh, wealthy men had their own uh, doctors. For uh, Slaves were doctors, okay? Um, and so Luke starts out, the former account, my gospel, uh, okay, uh, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit, uh, after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he goes on, and the idea is that Jesus Christ, Luke's gospel, volume one, was only the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That was when he was physically on the earth conducting ministry. Now he was going to continue it through his body, the church. And this was incredible because when Jesus Christ was on the earth, he was limited to one place at one time because he took on a human body. When he went back to his father, the Holy Spirit could come and indwell every believer on the face of the planet where Jesus' body would be spread out over the whole globe and do much greater work in his name. And so again, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Spirit fell, the church was born, and now the church is going out and is uh, continuing the work Jesus began. Well, back in John 12, again, verse 20, now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Guys, these Greeks are what the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. God-fearers. A group of Gentiles who loved the God of Israel and were sympathetic to and supportive of the Jewish faith, yet they had not uh, proselytized to Judaism. They had not been circumcised and were not living the strict Jewish uh, life that... Um, a true Jew had to live, carry, uh, obeying laws and uh, ceremonies and so on. Um, but these were very religious people who had come to believe in the God of Israel, okay? Uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius fit into this category. Let me read to you out of Acts 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, There was a certain man named, uh, in Caesarea named, called Cornelius, a centurion, which means he was a... Um, uh, he was a, a, a ruler or a, a, an officer, over 100 men. So in Caesarea was a, a man called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God. That's where the term God-fear comes in, one who feared God with all his household who gave alms generously, and alms was a gift of money to the poor. So he helped poor Jewish people, because he loved the God of Israel, and therefore he would love his people, God's people. So he'd give money uh, to poor Jewish people that had no other way of making a living or surviving. Uh, devout man feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. Now, I wanted to bring up this because these Greeks came who were God-fearers. I wanted to uh, give you, uh, you know, remind you of one that we have studied when we studied Acts uh, chapter 10, named Cornelius. It's interesting to see how religious a person can be and still not be saved. In this room, we have probably a lot of ex-Roman Catholics. I, I'm one. And you probably have 
many who are in your family who are still Roman Catholics. You might even have a few that go to Mass every single day of the week. There are Catholics who are so devout, they will go to Mass every day of the week. They will keep feast days, holy days. They'll light candles constantly, pray the rosary every day, and so on. They're very religious. Uh, it's amazing to see how religious a person can be and still not be saved. Certainly Cornelius was sincere in his, in his obedience to God's law, in his fasting, and in his generosity to the Jewish people, no doubt about it. Uh, as a Gentile, he was not permitted to offer sacrifices in the temple because that was only for Jews. And so he purposed that he would pray to God. That's why he prayed constantly. That was his sacrifice he was offering to God. And it could be he had read what in our Bibles is Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, which talks about our prayers ascending as incense before the throne of God as a, as a sacrifice. Maybe that's where he got it from. I don't know. But in every way, he was a model of religious respectability, and yet he was not a saved man. Now, we know that because religion and sincerity does not get a person into heaven. We know that from John 3, when a very religious guy, and I think he was a decent guy, Nicodemus, certainly he was a Pharisee, and not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. He wasn't a hypocrite. He comes to Jesus one night and says, you know, we believe you're the Messiah. A man sent from God. Nobody could do the works that you do unless God is with him. We, we have come to believe, a group of us, that you're the Messiah. And Jesus just cuts to the chase and says, Nicodemus, Nobody is going to see the kingdom of God unless they are first born again. Nicodemus was taken back. So, well, Master, how can an old man like me crawl back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus says, no, you're not understanding. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You have to undergo two births to get to heaven. One physical, we all qualify. And then the other spiritual where you receive Jesus into your heart and you are born of the Spirit, connected to God, and there's a vital union of communion that all the religion in the world can't connect you to, to Jesus with. You have to be born of the Spirit. I said the first service, we've said it before, let me say it again. You cannot join the Church of Jesus Christ. You cannot join the Church of Jesus. Nobody can. That doesn't mean you can't join a church. That doesn't mean you can't go down the road and join X church on, you know, Y corner. I'm just saying you can't join the true church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. You have to be born into it. That's the thing a lot of people don't understand. They think that by going to church and keeping ceremonies and the holy days and sacraments and so on, they are earning a place in heaven. And Jesus talked to one of the most religious men in Israel, Pharisee, Nicodemus, they were very zealous for the Ju Judaism. And he said, not even you, Nicodemus, can ascend to heaven by your good works. That's why the Son of Man has come down from heaven, to meet you where you are, to tell you what you need to do to be saved and to get to heaven. And I'm paraphrasing now. Believe me. Put, put your faith in me. And the Holy Spirit will place you in my body, the church, the true church. And someday I'm going to come for that group, that body. We call it the rapture. Someday the Lord is coming for his church. We don't have to worry about how we get to him. He's coming to get us. But there's a lot of folks who are decent people, religious people. Like Cornelius, they're not atheists or agnostics. They're not overtly wicked or immoral. They are loving people, good parents, faithful spouses, law-abiding citizens who believe in God and yet really don't understand what it means to be born of the Spirit and heaven-bound. They may think they know. I thought I knew until I started reading the Bible. Then I realized I had been falsely instructed. I'd be given religion, and God wants a relationship. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded that we go to them, right? 
go into all the world and preach the gospel to the lost, right? In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded that we go to them, but sometimes they come to us, as John 12 teaches. Are we ready? Are we ready? You know, Peter said, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, draw away from the world. So many Christians have this strange relationship with the world. They want Jesus and the kingdom of God, but they still want the world. They're kind of stuck between two kingdoms, two worlds. Peter is saying, look, if you, you want to be ready, when people come to you and want to know how to get to heaven, first thing you do is get your life right with God. Stop playing Christian. Stop being carnal. Stop being worldly. Draw away from the world. Sanctify yourself, which means get set apart yourself to God exclusively. That's the first step. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready. Always be ready to give a defense. The Greek word is apologia. It's a Greek word that means to present your case in a court of law. People are coming to you and they want to know what makes you right. Why are you a Christian and not a Buddhist or a Muslim or something else? Now you got to present your case. Why you believe that Christianity is true and Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind. You have to know what to say. And now's the time you practice on your own. You practice by yourself. Getting certain questions from unbelievers. And how would you respond? Be ready that when somebody asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, you're ready to go. You're going to give them that reason. You're going to do it with humility, though, he says. Humility. Don't, you know, cocky and know-it-all, proud, arrogant. No, no. Humility, humbly. Share the gospel with them. Again, verse 21. Then these Greeks, these Gentiles came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I saw this years ago, and I've kept it. It's, I think it's good. One commentator said, and I quote, In L.A., there is a church called the Church of the Open Door. On the back wall were only the pastor, back wall were only the pastor, preacher, or speaker standing at the pulpit could see it was a sign that read, Sir, we would see Jesus. Well, that's the King James translation. It comes out of John 12, 21. Sir, we, 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 we want to see Jesus. New King James, we wish to see Jesus. The author says, J. Vernon McGee, who pastored there at one time, said he would have liked to put a sign on the pulpit that only the congregation should see, could see. And that sign would read, Galatians 4.16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Of course, he never did it. They probably wouldn't have appreciated it. The author goes on, We can commend these Greeks for wanting to see Jesus. The Jews would say, We want to see a sign. But these men said, We want to see Jesus. There's no record that Jesus did talk with these men. I think he did. I think it's coming up. You'll see it. But the message that Jesus gave in response contains truths that all of us need, end quote. Guys, during the last week of Jesus' life, he spent each day in the temple teaching. Probably then he made the mile and three-quarter walk to the house of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus where he spent the night. He often did this when he was in Jerusalem anyways. They probably had a guest room. They were a wealthy family. Probably had a guest room that Jesus stayed in when he was in Jerusalem ministering. And I'm almost positive that every day spending all day in the temple teaching that last week, he would then re retire to their house to, to rest, sleep, and then come back as it was in close proximity of the temple. Um, these Greeks came to Philip probably because they knew he was one of Jesus' disciples. That wasn't, you know, that was common knowledge. Um, but also knew he was from Bethsaida. That was an area up in the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and it was a Gentile, predominantly Gentile area. So they're looking to connect with somebody. Well, uh, Philip, he's a disciple. Uh, he's from a Gentile area, and his name is Greek. Philip is a, a Greek name. So they figured, well, let's go to him. Okay, let's, let's try him. Yet Philip, notice, doesn't take them directly to Jesus himself. 
Instead, he takes them to Andrew, Peter's brother, uh, to find out what we, he should do. Uh, Andrew eventually winds up taking the guys, and Philip tags along to Jesus, all right? What was the problem? Well, I don't think we should read too much into it. I think the simplest explanation is that Philip was unsure of how to handle these Gentile seekers. You know, the words of his Lord Jesus Christ were ringing in his ear. When he sent us out, he said, don't go uh, into the way of the Gentiles, right? Don't go into any Gentile areas, and don't even go into the city of the Samaritans, Matthew 10, verse 5. Also, in Matthew 15, verse 24, the Lord said that he was, that, uh, he was sent. Jesus said, I'm, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the idea is Philip was a little nervous about what to do. He didn't want to get in trouble with the, with the Lord. You know, he didn't want the Lord to be upset with him. He's bringing Gentiles to Jesus, right? So it comes to Andrew. And Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And Peter and Andrew um, were a little more, what's the term? Uh, aggressive, take charge kind of guys. You know, I mean, Philip was a little more laid back, shy maybe. And so, Andrew, what should we do? Ah, come on, let's go. You want to see Jesus? Let's take him to Jesus. It's like the morning of the resurrection when the girl said the tomb is empty, the stone's been rolled away, and John and Peter ran to the tomb. John, being the younger guy, got there first, and he doesn't want to go in because Passover. You can't come in contact with the tomb. You're going to defile yourself. His upbringing kicks in, right? Finally, Peter comes up, you know, and he goes right in. He didn't care. Went right in. He was a, kind of a take charge kind of guy, you know. And I think that's what was going on here. But even though that was probably the literal, literal interpretation, I do believe, guys, there was a spiritual application uh, to this incident. One that uh, one of the commentators I enjoy reading because he, he sees things that a lot of other commentators don't, uh, Arthur W. Pink. I think he kind of nails it. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, They supplicated Philip, making known their wish and asking if it were possible to have it granted, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus, or more little, literally the Greek says, Jesus we desire to see. At, that very, at the very time, and I really thought this was good, at the very time the leaders of Israel sought to kill Jesus, the Greeks desired to see Jesus. This was the first voice from the outside world, outside of Judaism, Israel. This was the first voice from the outside world which gave a hint of the awakening consciousness that Jesus was about to be the Savior of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, end quote. All right, let's, a little more we'll, we'll need to close and pick it up next week. But verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, and I, I think he's answering the, the Greeks and the, and the Jews that were standing there. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The Son of Man should be glorified. Now, this is a very important passage for us to understand, guys. Uh, and it all happens to hinge on the request of these Gentiles to see Jesus. First, Jesus talks about his crucifixion, which he strangely refers to as his glorification. We would have expected him to say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be crucified. But Jesus always saw beyond the cross to the glory that would follow. In Luke 24, 26, as he appeared to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, the afternoon after his resurrection, he said to them, Luke 24, verse 36, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Suffer, I had to suffer the cross to enter into glory. the idea. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, Paul says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the glory, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The point I, I wanted to bring out is that the cross was never the end, but was always intended to be the means to an end. There's a lot of Christians who look at the cross as the end, as the instrument that brought us salvation, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm not putting that down. They're stopping short, though. That's not what God intended when he had Jesus go to the cross. The cross was a means to an end. And that end ultimately was that God had to save people 
before he could turn them into true worshipers who would worship him in spirit and truth for all eternity. We see this in Revelation chapter 5, the redeemed in heaven at this point, as John sees this vision, surrounded all around the throne of God singing his praises. You have redeemed us. And they're praising, we're, we're praising God, right? That was the end God intended. I, I, know, I know that people say, well, you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? Oh, to save me from hell. Well, that was, a good, that was a necessary prerequisite and a very wonderful byproduct. But if God's whole purpose in Jesus going to the cross um, was to keep us from going to hell, I got a better solution. Don't create anybody in the first place, then everyone doesn't, nobody goes to hell. You understand what I'm saying? If that was God's intention, um, was to, you know, in, in, in saving people, was just to save them from the fires of hell. If, if that was it, not wanting people to go to hell, don't, don't make anybody, then nobody goes to hell. Again, the point was the cross was a means to an end, and the end was to gather to himself a community of true worshipers who would worship him forever and in spirit and in truth. You have to save people before you get to that goal, okay? Now, many times, guys, during his public ministry, Jesus made the statement, my hour has not yet come. Remember a few times they wanted to take him by force and make him king? But he would always say, my hour has not yet come, and he would slip away and he would be gone. Now here in John 12, verse 23, and again, this section is pivotal. He says, the hour has come. To explain the necessity of his death in producing much life, many souls for the kingdom. He uses an illustration from something they were all very familiar with, farming. Farming. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Very simple illustration. They would have all known immediately what he was talking about. Uh, of course, if you're farming, you take a grain of something like wheat, you have to bury it in the ground where it dies, it germinates. And because it germinates, it pushes up a stalk that eventually comes out of the ground and bears many seeds, right? Much fruit. Jesus then took that simple illustration and applied it to himself. He said, and skip over to verses 32 and 3, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, after I was buried, okay, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, listen, all peoples, not just Jews, all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die, of course, the cross. One author said, when Jesus in verse 24 began by saying, most assuredly, I say to you, that introduces a solemn affirmation. The analogy of a kernel of wheat dying in the ground and producing many seeds teaches that death is necessary for a harvest. Seed never produces grain until first it falls into the ground and dies. The Lord Jesus here referred to himself as a grain of wheat. If he did not die, he would abide alone. In other words, he would enjoy the glories of heaven by himself. There, wouldn't be, there would be no saved sinners there to share his glory. But if he died, he would provide a way of salvation by which many might be saved. Listen, as, as we bring this so close, Jesus didn't come to save people by instruction. Teaching alone wouldn't have done it. He didn't come to save people by example. He lived a wonderful example, but that in itself wouldn't have been enough. I mean, he didn't say, if you try to live the life that I have lived and follow in my steps, you'll be saved. He didn't say that. Because you get saved first, and then you receive the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. There's a lot of religious folks who think, I'm going to follow Jesus because I want to get to heaven. I want to, I want to be saved. You got the order of reversed. Come to Christ, receive him, get saved, and he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit, and that will give you the power to live, and follow, live for Jesus and follow him the rest of your life. We can't begin to follow Jesus until he first comes into our hearts by faith and gives us power to live for him. Jesus had to suffer. 
He had to suffer and die before people could be saved. If Jesus hadn't died, again, he would have remained alone. As the only member of the human race worthy of heaven, the only member of God's family, the family of God would have consisted only of one person, Jesus Christ. Through his death, he was buried like a seed. Through his resurrection, he produced much fruit. Check out 1 Corinthians 15, excuse me, yes, 15 verses 20 and following. Paul said he was the first fruits of those who come up out of the ground, guaranteeing a great harvest of souls during the great resurrection of all who have put their faith in Christ. Guys, to believe salvation is possible any other way apart from Jesus Christ dying for us, if I, a person believes, they can get to heaven by just being very religious and very moral. Well, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, Christ died in vain. If righteousness could come through the law, keeping religious rules, rituals, and so on, then Christ died in vain. And this was coming from a man who had been a Pharisee at one time, Paul the Apostle, who had lived all his life in such a zealous way to keep the law. He said, when I realized that to get to heaven, I had to put my faith in Jesus, all my works, religious works, I considered nothing but dung to embrace the knowledge of Christ who alone could give me the eternal life and the place in heaven I'd always longed for but could never achieve through religion. All right, we'll leave it there. I didn't want to leave it there. Uh, I, I have more pages. Uh, I think it's enough right now. So uh, come on back because there are some things I, I didn't get to that really are... Uh, I'm calling this... i got to call it part one now. I'm calling this message Dying to Live. I didn't even get to that part yet. But I'm going to throw it out to you, so it's on your mind coming back next week. The message is called Dying to Live. What does that mean? It's one of those Christian paradoxes. And you'll find out next week what that means. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, who died in our place. Lord Jesus, no man took your life from you, you, from you, you gave it freely for the sheep. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, give us grace as we meditate on, this is our port, a portion of the Gospel of John, where now the Lord is turning to Gentiles and giving them the responsibility of now taking the light of his truth, God's truth to this world. Give us grace to do that very thing. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.